I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Monroe Bergdorf, host of The Way We Are on Spotify. And I'm so excited to be back for a second series speaking to more extraordinary guests like JVN, Yasmin Finney, and Chella Mann, making space for them to share stories of turning trauma into triumph and adversity into opportunity. The Way We Are with Monroe Bergdorf, every Monday, only on Spotify. Hello and welcome back to a brand new series of Castaway. How are you? It's been a while, hasn't it? Uh, Well, we're starting back the series in spectacular style. Is there any other way? We have the sensational Stephanie Beatrice. Now, as an actress, Steph is known for her hilarious portrayal of Detective Rosa Diaz in the critically acclaimed Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I'm obsessed with that show. I'm obsessed with her and her delivery. But... You may also know her more recently for voicing the main character of Mirabelle in the Oscar-winning Disney film Encanto. But right now, we don't want to talk about Bruno. Had to do that. I'm really sorry. I apologise, but I was squeezing that in somewhere. Something you may not know about Stephanie is that she's a true crime buff. She narrates the Wondery podcast, Twin Flames. It's a chilling story of a couple turned cult leaders that have ruined the lives of so many in the pursuit of love. And actually, the first time I met Steph in real life was after her West End show called A Ghost Story 222. And we talked so much about true crime. So it's no surprise when I asked her for her recommendations of podcasts, they are jam-packed with some goodies. We talk about her love of going to the hilarious live recordings of My Favourite Murder, the pairing of alcohol and crime in the True Crime and Cocktails podcast. Steph also shares a curiosity for surprising stories behind iconic women. We deep dive into Reba McIntyre's memoir on Celebrity Book Club. Steph talks so passionately about her love for this genre. So if you are into crime, not committing them, we're not promoting that, but listening to these stories, we have some great recommendations for you. Also in this chat, we talk about her career from stage to screen. We talk about representation, being a new mom. And we recorded this just a few days before the Oscars. So we talk getting ready for the Oscars. Please enjoy the first episode of a brand new series. This is Castaway with Stephanie Beatrice. So, first of all, welcome to Castaway. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Actually, I'm over in London. You are in LA, I think? That's right. Yes, I'm in beautiful, sunny Los Angeles. Sorry to brag. Well, we have sun over here. (laughs) It's a shock to all of us involved because I know I met you in London and you were in London at not the best time for London when it came to weather. It's hot here. You know, it was a journey being in London (laughs) during the winter. It was a real journey. It it was character building. 
right? Isn't that what they say? <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm like, just LA is nice. Enjoy LA. But yeah, it is actually really nice and sunny here. And But you did spend a lot of time in London. You know, what's the difference in the two places besides the, the weather? Oh my God. I mean, I think the car culture here is just completely different. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. so much of London was getting around, exploring our neighborhood by foot. We were living in Shoreditch at the time and you know, it was just like walking around and sort of exploring that way. And anywhere we would go was like, we would take a mini cab or, you know, the trains and here it's just a completely different, I mean, there's things here that I just took for granted how easy they are, like going to the grocery store and shopping with a car, you know, while we were Mm -hmm. in London, we didn't have a car. So Mm -hmm. it was just tricky. That was a, a, a sort of thing that I didn't expect to be so tricky. And it really was. Character building, as you said. Character building, yeah. Yeah. One thing that I quite like with when I'm jumping in a car or actually today I had to go into town. I just, I love the tube. My agent always laughs because they're like, they'll send you a car. I'm like, no, I love the tube because I know how long it's going to be. It's going to be like 22 minutes. LA Uh I don't like because something could be 22 minutes or something could be two hours. You just Oh my God. When my husband and I, and presumes Brad, when we got married, I had cousins from Texas land at LAX and they measured out on the map how far away the wedding venue was from the airport. And they were like, well, it's 12 miles. It's not Mm -hmm. not bad at all. Mm -hmm. It took them like, you know, what, two hours or something to drive that 12 miles. It's just, uh, it's the Wild West, literally and figuratively here. And when you're in the car, think of all those things you can do, like listening to podcasts, like listening to this podcast. Because if it wasn't for those long commutes, probably half the people wouldn't be listening to podcasts. That's correct. I mean, podcasts really change the game for car rides. You can get so much more out of that 45 minute commute. You like can go on a little journey wherever you want. You know, the world is basically your oyster with podcasts in the car. I've once actually, I got to where I wanted to, I was driving um, to a friend's and I got there before the podcast was over. So I just actually drove around the block a few times because I needed to know how that ended. Oh, 100%. I want to ask you the first time you listened to a podcast or knew what a podcast was, because it's only recently that my mother started listening to this because she was quite confused as to what a podcast was. Oh, that's so sweet. Oh, that's so pure. Oh, my God. It's so pure. How do I? I'm like, just click the link, mother. Just Just click click the the link. link. I know. I know. I don't remember the first podcast I listened to. I truly don't. I remember the first time that I got really into one where I was like, I'm listening to a new episode of this every day until I catch up. And that was My Favorite Murder, which is a really popular comedy, (gasps) Mm -hmm. true crime podcast here. And a comedy Um, and true crime together at last. You would not think that they'd be a great pairing, but you'd be wrong because Mm -hmm. Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark are the hosts of it. And they are just so funny. Their chemistry is so good together. And the way that they talk about true crime is just so – it's so fantastic because, you know, it's it's a terrifying world – the true crime sort of world genre. Mm. And the majority of the victims are oftentimes women. So mm-hmm. to have these two women talking about these stories and these cases and infusing them in like weird ways, there's things that they make you laugh at that makes you feel sort of like, I don't know, for me, it was like, I feel in control of a story and a world in which we have so little control. Mm-hmm. You just start feeling like, 
I don't know. It, do, it just doesn't feel as big and scary anymore when you've got your two podcast friends laughing about stuff. It, it, when they look at statistics, it's it's women that listen to, like according to surveys, that women that listen to these true crime more than men. And it's yeah. women who are murdered and talked about in, in yeah. these more than men. It's just this really weird kind of like slightly sickening interest, but like, I get it. I get it. Yeah. I think we want to know. We want to know, you know, there's a weird part of my brain that goes, okay, well, what can I do then to protect myself from that moment? Yeah. You know, there's that that the very famous stories about Ted Bundy and some of those yeah. stories are here he was, this good looking guy on the side of the road with his car, his van, Asking for help, saying like, oh, I just need help like getting this into my van or I just need help with, you know, X, Y, and Z. And these women, because we've been socialized to, tried to be helpful. And in their trying Mm -hmm. to be helpful, they were taken advantage of. And so I think, you know, all of us listening to these podcasts and hearing these stories, we're we're clocking this stuff and going like, yeah, no, I'm not going to (laughs) help, you know, or, you know, I'm not going to pull over on the side of the road and help. I'm not going to necessarily put myself in the position to be a good Samaritan in a situation in which I I might get taken advantage of. I think that there's something, again, it's like, oh, could I take control of that moment where mm. it feels like I have no control? You're right. There is kind of like a, an empowerment to it and an understanding. And I think as well, a lot of it is testament, as you mentioned, to the, to the two hosts who I love, Karen and Georgia, especially like podcasting when it first started felt quite male dominated. Like you've got those big, the Joe Rogans and these big, you yes. know, these big shows. And to kind of have two women hosting a hugely successful podcast like this, you know, started out in 2016, which wasn't that long ago, but podcasts weren't you know, we didn't really know. It's only really since lockdown that they became so big. So it was, you know, it was quite a big deal. Yeah, it was a huge deal. And the fact that these are two women that are, you know, yes, they're white women, but they're still underrepresented in media. They're both in their mid 40s. I believe Karen's 50. They're, both of them are without kids. So they've like, they've had these like very underrepresented sort of lives in media. Mm-hmm. And here they are on this podcast. And not only is it a podcast about true crime, but it's also about their friendships. It's about their careers. It's about how they view the world. It's about their mental health. They've both been very open about going to therapy. And I believe George has talked a lot about how her therapist has like put her on medication for, you know, all of that stuff is really helpful too, because anytime you're listening to a podcast, you start thinking of the hosts as your friends. And so here are your friends now telling you this like really vulnerable stuff about themselves and mm. maybe leading you to go into your mind and ask yourself questions of like, what about me? Do do I maybe want to explore therapy? Maybe you mm-hmm. don't come from a household where people talk about that very much. Maybe this is the first time you've heard people sort of say talk about therapy in a positive light. I mean, it's really incredible what they've kind of, how they've kind of grown their audience just truly by being themselves. And speaking about growing an audience and being authentic, a podcast, you know, as a, as an actor, you used to have to be booked for a job or you've got to, you know, wait for the opportunity or wait for the network yeah. or the platform or the production company or for me, like the radio station or the TV show to say yes to you. Well, when this started, they probably didn't realize just how big it was going to be. And podcasts have kind of opened up this new space where if you're not getting booked for a job or they're not making the show you want, you can kind of make it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people are starting to understand that narrative podcasts are a a way to test out material. In a lot of ways, many companies are starting to produce these podcasts with 
the possibility of turning them into a TV show in mm-hmm. mind, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think like it's a sort of backdoor into developing a television show because you can, let's say, go to a meeting or go to a pitch and show the the yes people, right? Yeah. Your proof. And your proof is look at this great podcast that we've already done. Look how many people like it. Look how great it's gone. You know, it's won these awards or whatever. We'd like to develop it into a TV show. It's already going to be a success. There's already a clear audience for it. Mm -hmm. Let us take it to the next level. Uh, you even see what, what uh, you know the girls from uh, My Favorite Murder have done. Like they've they founded the podcast network. They got their own network, exactly right yep. media. Then you know they've got their dual memoir, Stay Sexy, Don't Get Murdered. I mean that's some advice for everybody. A huge seller too. Yeah, huge bestseller, number one New York Times bestseller. And their tour, they toured it. Podcasts are going on tour live. And as someone who you know you you've done theater, you've been in films, you've you've done television, like podcasts. What do you make of podcasts that go live, that go on stage? Because it's such a personal thing podcast they're, they're in your ears they're in your mm-hmm. airpods you know i actually went to see my favorite murder in vegas um, <gasps> with my sister because yeah. i think particularly comedy podcasts you're a proper um, fan aren't you as well you're i'm a really a fan yes i am a proper <laughs> fan i i think particularly comedy podcasts or i would say like podcasts that are led by let's say like a personality mm. i think those are really successful can be really successful on tour because then you're seeing, you know, your podcast friends live and in the same room. And especially if it's comedy, you're having a great time. I mean, in Vegas, it was so fun because my sister and I went for like a day, you know, we went overnight and we had our little drinks and we were sitting in the audience with a mm-hmm. bunch of other fans. We're all laughing mm-hmm. together at these stories that they're telling. And it's it can be such a fun night. And especially, I think, when your time is so precious as adults, like our time is so precious. We're like trying to split our brains between our families, our jobs, our friends, you know, you don't want to buy tickets to something without kind of knowing like, this is going to be fun. Like, I know I'm going to have a good time tonight. Let's not waste it. You know what I mean? Yes. And like, you just don't, I mean, you got to get like, if you're a parent, you got to get a babysitter. You got to get your night off work Mm -hmm. if you don't have kids, you know, it's like (laughs) Mm -hmm. all these things. And so if you know that you love a podcast and they're coming to your town live for two nights only, you better believe you're going to go, you know? Like, I think that it's so brilliant of them to have gone on tour. I mean, I know it's hard. Touring is really hard as somebody who's also done that Mm -hmm. it's difficult so like I commend them for doing it I think it's such a it's such a brilliant sort of way again to like continue bonding with their audience even just from listening to your first recommendation and thank you because you know we've got a list of recommendations we've lost to get through including your own podcast but I can kind of get an idea of what you're into and it's quite wide range people will know you so well as Rosa Diaz from from Brooklyn Nine-Nine and you seem to be interested in everything from true crime to comedy has it always been like that especially when it came to acting were you always looking for a certain type of role or have you always kind of be interested in the wide range I think the wide range. I mean, I was lucky that when I was a kid, I was exposed to a lot of different kinds of reading material. My mom would take us to the library all the time and she would basically just let us wander around and pick anything we wanted off the shelves. And, Mm. you know, we got to go home with it. You know, I was anywhere from like in the, the, 
aisle books about like World War II to like the kids picture book section to like the young adult fantasy section. I mean, I was everywhere in that library. And so Mm. like my tastes are really broad in the sense of the types of stories that I like, but I've always, always loved comedy. You know, no matter what amount of pressure is going on, whether it's like fear or just like intense drama pressure, like I think comedy and storytelling allows you to sort of like you know, release the pressure valve a little, like, you know, mm-hmm. like a like a hot pot or whatever. Like you just release the valve and it's like, oh, like comedy lets you breathe. Yeah, babe, I, I had to marry a comedian. That's, that's how bad See it got I'm saying? Me. Like you needed yeah. it. You needed it every <laughs> single day of your life. Yeah. Sometimes it gets a bit much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's me. I'm the, see, I'm, I'm that version in my marriage. So yeah. <laughs> did you always want to act? When did you know that was the route for you? Oh, I wanted to do it since I was like in middle school, which for here, I, I don't know what it is over there, but like when you're like 12, 13, mm-hmm. I sort of figured out that I liked it. But did something happen? Did you, did you get a role or did you watch something? Yeah, I was in junior high and I was in a speech and debate class. And in the speech and debate class, we got to do two plays during the year. And the second play that we did, I auditioned for it. And of course, I wanted the, you know, the ingenue lead role. And I instead got the role of the villain. So I had to wear <laughs> a top hat and a mustache. and <laughs> play all a, villains wear hats and mustaches. That's exactly right. And – That actually weirdly solidified it for me because A, I felt like I was completely – I had disappeared completely into that role because Mm -hmm. no one recognized me and I was like an entire auditorium full of preteens laugh. I just was like riding on the wave of it, the entire performance. And it was like short, you know, like a little melodrama, Mm -hmm. an hour long. But I still remember being on stage and feeling the audience laugh and – I just was like completely hooked. I just wanted to tell stories and I wanted to disappear into characters. That's what I wanted to do forever. I just knew it from that point on. Things did change for you. You you get cast in the role of Rosa in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. There's being a a working actor to being known really well for playing a specific character. How did you deal with that shift of um, people probably thinking that you are that person? I found it very funny. I mean, especially in the beginning, people would say things like, you know who you look like? You look like that girl (laughs) that plays Rosa on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And I'd be like, that's so funny. That's – I get that all the time, you know? And I'm I'm lucky that I'm not – at this point, and maybe I never will be like instantly recognizable because I do have one of those faces that kind of, depending on what I'm doing, it can really shift and change into somebody else. And like I used to jokingly say like when I did theater – and I still say it now. My face loves makeup. Like it loves it. I look so <laughs> different. You know what I mean? Like I just yeah, – yeah, yeah. I can look so different with makeup on and with my glasses on and no makeup and my hair pulled back. Like I can just disappear into a wall. And in a way, that's really lovely. In other ways, it's really annoying. But, you know, I think actually doing 222 in London was really jarring because I think – I didn't realize how big Brooklyn was there and it it's still on TV. They show it on TV all the time and I just – I didn't really grasp it and then being there in person was really amazing because I would get recognized so much and it was so lovely because, you know, for me here in the US, they've already aired the eighth season. It's The show is really over and done and it was an incredible ride but in – Great Britain, and they haven't aired the 
the eighth season yet. So people are still sort of waiting to see it. And that was really lovely too, because it was a reminder that like all that hard work that we did, people really appreciated it. Did you direct an episode or some episodes? Yeah, I did. I directed an episode in, I believe, season six. It was called He Said, She Said. It was sort of um, Jake and Amy getting to know each other a lot better and Amy confessing to Jake that she had this moment where she was sexually harassed by a superior officer and they work mm. on a case where it's like mm. it is a he said, she said moment. It's like, mm. do we believe the woman who's saying that this happened? Do we believe the guy who's saying it didn't? And I thought it was really well written. It was written by Lang Fisher, a really smart writer, and I was really excited to direct. It was so fun. How was it kind of going from, um, I shouldn't say the puppet to the puppeteer, but is it, you know, from just having that different hat <laughs> on on set? I felt an immense amount of pressure to steer the ship because essentially on a TV show when you're directing, you really are just steering the ship. It's already functioning. You're not coming in and, you know, reinventing the wheel or anything. You're just no, but you could easily crash it into a wall, though. You could crash it into an iceberg. You really could. You really could. And that was very, like, stressful. And also, I wanted to keep everyone happy because they're my friends, you know? So by the 12th take of something, you know, I can see my actor friends rolling their eyes back in their heads. And I'm like, I'm sorry. We have to get, like, four more. I'm so sorry, you know? So it was, like, hard balance. But I think it was really useful for me, especially as an actor, because I think – I tend to get impatient when I feel like people aren't doing their their best all the time. Like I try to bring 110 when I am mm -hmm. on set at any given time. I'm like ready to go. And it taught me a lot about the other side of the camera, which is like everyone there is also doing their best. But there's so many moving pieces that sometimes everything just has to grind to a halt and you've got mm -hmm. to be patient and wait. And it taught me a lot about that. Right, we talk true crime and comedy. Should we talk about another great duo, true crime and cocktails? Another true crime podcast. I'm sensing a theme. Yes. Uh, tell me a little bit about this particular podcast and why you've okay. chosen it. So True Crime and Cocktails is a podcast by a good friend of mine, Lauren Ash. You probably know her from Superstore. She's a comedian, actress. She's hilarious. And her best friend is actually her cousin. And her name is Christy Oxborough. And they are so funny together. Every week it's like a new case. Christy is incredible. She does an insane amount of research. They sit down and they each have a cocktail and they just go for it. And Christy usually is the one leading the research, but oftentimes Lauren will also do like an episode of research and they're just so funny. The best thing I think about their podcast is A, the research and B, you hear stories from their childhood and their adolescence because, you know, they're cousins, so they grew up together. And it is so mm. funny and sweet to hear their relationship. They jokingly call each other like they're soul like we're soulmates, but you really can sense it. Like you really feel like, oh, these two women, they just love each other so much and they just respect and like adore each other and they're so funny together. I love it so much. Sophie, a murder in West Cork. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about it because if you're not familiar, we'll catch you up to speed like we always do. Again, if you're a first timer, this is what we do. We're getting back into the rhythm. It's not all yell, yell, anger, sadness. We're good. French television producer Sophie Toscan de Plantier was spending time alone in her holiday home in Ireland when she was found brutally murdered in De December 1996. Early on, investigators zeroed in on a local journalist named Ian Bailey, who has since been arrested three separate times for the crime. 
despite a French trial convicting Bailey of Sophie's murder, an Irish court has found him not guilty. So was Ian, 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 Ian Ziering, it's yeah, Ian. I know. Yep. So sorry. So was Ian Bailey truly involved in Sophie's murder? Or was the police investigation so biased against him that investigators ignored evidence pointing to another killer? But if Ian Bailey is innocent, then why has he confessed? Christy Oxborough investigates. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I want to talk about your next recommendation, which is a yes. first for this podcast, which is Celebrity Book Club. Talking about celebrating memoirs, badass celebrity women who, let's be honest, women have had it pretty tough, especially those in the spotlight uh, right. in recent times. Tell me a little bit about this Celebrity Book Club. Oh my gosh, Celebrity Book Club with Chelsea Devantes mm -hmm. is so funny. She's a writer. She's incredibly smart, hilarious, a great follow on Instagram. And she started. I love, a, I love a, good, a, great, a great follow. Do you know when someone's. It's such a <gasps> lovely way to describe someone. They're a great follow. They're a great she's follow. She's a great follow. She is, she's just yeah. hilarious. And like the, the great thing that she does with Celebrity Book Club is she invites a friend of hers, usually an actor or a comedian, to read the memoir with her that week. And then they mm -hmm. discuss it on the podcast. And for me, it's like, I don't have a ton of time to read all the time, but I'm interested mm -hmm. in these women's stories. So it's really fun to listen to because they break down the book, they break down their favorite parts of the book. And then you learn so much about these people, some of whom, you know, have had these kind of storied, amazing careers in Hollywood. And you kind of figure out like, oh no, this person's a mess. Or, oh my God, listen to what they've been through and how mm -hmm. hard they had it and how incredible they came out on the other side. They're really inspiring. They can be really heartfelt. You see mm -hmm. yourself a lot in them. She does this great thing where before each episode, she also does a bunch of Instagram stories while she's reading the book and she'll like underline favorite quotes or make fun of certain parts. And she's got tons of fans now and they all weigh in on the the memoirs too. We did Celine Dion, which was a batshit crazy. It was nuts. And I think my favorite that she's ever done was probably – God, it's hard to choose, but I really like the Reba McIntyre episode. She's just like a brilliant – she's brilliant. She's really brilliant and funny. She's super smart. I just think she's like the bee's knees. I love her. Then it gets to her first husband, Charlie. Oh, Charlie. I'm going to read the pages. Oh, boy. So this is this is husband number one where she's going to have to prove she didn't steal him. Mm -hmm. And I, I do love – I love these paragraphs. Uh, so I'm going to read the three paragraphs when they meet. That night – after we put the horses up, we wound up celebrating at the Cow Palace. 
my favorite name of a bar ever, the Cow Palace. <laughs> a dance hall well-known for country music and dancing. We were drinking lots of beer and having a real good time when Paik, her brother, pulled Beth into the men's room just to be funny. As things played out, I'd been around Charlie all day. The house lights came on, the signal for everybody to leave because the place was closing. As I walked to Charlie's table, he pulled me onto his lap. We were all laughing, and I turned around and kissed him full on the mouth. I don't know why I did it. I was swept up by the excitement of the rodeo and the music and the beer. It was impulsive, but kissing Charlie just seems like the right thing to do at the time. Then, I'm just going to skip a little bit forward. A week later, I was back at Chalky practicing with Paik out at the roping pen. Reba, Paik said, Charlie left his wife. I was shocked, flabbergasted, astonished. Eventually, I would decide that he had left his wife for me, but I honestly had no such thoughts at the time. I hadn't been around Charlie enough to even think he'd be interested in me. I heard that he was unhappily married, but there had been no talk about him getting a divorce. Okay, so we'll just pause to say. So you cheated. Right. <laughs> he was married. Then he left her right a week after you kissing him, and you guys are going to get married. <laughs> so that is so what saying you're shocked. And it's honestly, she is the queen of shade. I will give her that. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm, wow, mm-hmm. she is the queen of shade. She basically said, all it took was a kiss I didn't even care that much about, and he was mine. You mentioned that you know you can sometimes see yourself in some of these stories. Have you personally noticed like disparity between men and women in the industry? And oh my god, yeah. You know, you kind of think someone's living a, a life that looks perfect, and then you realize, especially in these memoirs, that it ain't as good as it seems sometimes. Oh, yeah, it's, and you know, the things that you're led to believe as mm. a sort of general public. And you go, oh, well, this person's a terrible person because of X, Y, and Z. And then you read these memoirs and you sort of find out, oh, there was a PR machine that Mm. was churning, you know, news out to make them look bad. Oh, this ex-husband of hers, you know, was putting all this horrible information out. And in the past, we're kind of entering maybe into – maybe, fingers crossed, into a different time. But Mm. I think – it's always been harder for women. Everything's harder for us. We don't get paid equally. Our worth is often connected to how we look, how you know charming we are, how sexy we are, how young we are, which is very frustrating. And you listen to these memoirs and you just think like, I fucking can't believe she overcame all of that and is still, you know, Tina Turner or whoever, you yeah. know, like, and it's inspiring because you think, God, she had all that stacked against her and she still did it. She still left an indelible mark on the planet. When I look at my life, I'm like, well, I've had, I've definitely had hurdles to jump over, but not like that, you know? And so I go, okay, all right, well, I've got a leg up, you know, I can, I can do it. And some stuff that's get gets said, you know, like, for example, Reba McIntyre, like, Reba's a huge country star, huge. She's had successful television shows, she's an icon. And she says things like, I want to make art. I want to make my kind of country sincere. When Reva talks about wanting to make her kind of country and says the words sincere, to me, it's like, oh, that's so satisfying to hear because so many times I think in the entertainment industry, you get caught up in like, what's going to sell? What's going to sell? What's going to be the next big hit? What's the thing? It's got to be dark and edgy and this and that. And it's like, for me, I really do want to make stuff like Encanto, that feels like sincerely yeah. heartfelt and real because that's the kind of art that I respond to. So I'm, I'm guessing there's other human beings that like that too. you know. So I just find the podcast 
it's hilarious, but it's also really deeply inspiring. I'm really proud of myself that I've lasted this long before asking you a question about Encanto because <laughs> we watch a lot of Encanto in our house. Aww. I'm not just even using that as an excuse because I've got a child. It's like, oh, it's my choice. <laughs> I'm like, Amazing. she can't control Amazing. her own control. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm just listening to Mirabel the whole time, especially certain things you say when you get excited. I'm like, oh, there she is. Talk to me about how that happened. And I guess the narrative of children's stories have changed a lot since I was a kid. Yes. And even mm. now going back and list, watching some Disney films, I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't even see like how that happened. Mm. Mm-hmm. Did you realize how big Encanto was going to be when you got that role and when you were recording? No, no, there was no way any of us could have realized. Giovanna Fletcher, friend of both of ours, yeah, sort love. of jokingly said to me, you know, you told us that you were in this little Disney film <laughs> when we were in rehearsals for 222. You were like, oh, yeah, I did this like film. I don't know how it's going to come out. You know, I'm excited about it. We'll see. And then it was Encanto. And I was like, yeah, because I didn't know. I knew we were making something special. And I knew the animation was unlike anything I'd ever seen. There's parts where the hair and the skin looks real. Like, it's wild. The beauty of Columbia as it's animated in that film is just stunning, stunning, stunning. But I could not have guessed that people would respond to it the way that they have, which has been really, really lovely. There was that picture that went viral of that little girl standing in front of it and being like, it's me. Like, it's the first time she's seen something. Like, when you see something like that, especially, I guess, when you've got a kid now, is you know the ripple effect it's going to be and the history that it's made. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? We don't know what the ripple effect will be. I don't know. I'm so interested to know what the ripple effect will be in 10 years. My father's from Colombia. He's from Barranquilla. And anytime that I would say that my family was from Colombia, what I would hear back, especially in the last few years, is like, oh, like Narcos. Which, Mm -hmm. listen, Narcos is a beautiful, Mm -hmm. well-done television show. But it's a damn shame that most of the public thinks of Colombia and thinks of the drug trade. Mm -hmm. Now, people Mm -hmm. will say, oh, Colombia, like Encanto. That's a big difference. That's huge. And for people that don't know South America, and this is maybe like one of the first introductions that they're getting to South America, to Colombia, that's big. It's big, 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 big. I don't know what the repercussions will be, but I have a feeling they're going to be good. You said that you don't always get recognized if you've got your glasses on, but your voice now has become quite iconic. Have you noticed <gasps> that? Or do people sing at you? You must get, we no. don't talk about Bruno. Do people not sing no, at you? No, I'm no, no, no. Because I'm finding a not to sing at you. <laughs> no, I have, I have had a really nice experiences, particularly at the Disney parks, where yeah. parents will recognize me and then say to their kids, this is Mirabelle. And the kids mm-hmm. sort of look at me dubiously. Like, <laughs> and then I say, <laughs> yeah, but, and then I say, the last time this happened when we were in Disneyland Paris, I said to the mom, okay, I'm going to ask your kids to close their eyes. She was like, yeah, yeah. I said, close your eyes. They closed their eyes. And then I sang. And the look on their faces, they both immediately snapped open their eyes. And they were like, like, it's you, you know? And then at Disneyland, California, we went and a mom said, oh, can we take a picture? She loves the movie. She watches it all the time. It's this little girl in her stroller. She pulls the little girl out of her stroller. And I start talking to the mom and said, oh, yeah, of course. I'll be happy to take a picture. As soon as I began speaking, the little girl turned to me and reached her arms out like I was Santa Claus. and climbed into my arms like she knew me. And, Mm. you know, for all intents and purposes, she does know me because she listens to my voice apparently every day, which was bizarre and lovely, lovely, wonderful, wonderful, but so strange. Is it lovely to be able to use the singing as well? 
Yeah. I mean, you mean like in general? Well, or just like- general because you're, you obviously are a singer as well as an actor and to be able to kind of combine the two. Yeah. I mean, when I auditioned for In the Heights, yeah, I, I know, which is like... Let's talk about doing that. Like, I haven't even got onto that yet. Can I have another hour, please? I mean, listen, I almost didn't audition for In the Heights because I thought I'm not a singer. I don't know. I don't know how I would even be brave enough to audition. Did you have to do it in front of Lin Manuel as well? Did you have to sit there? Does he sit at a front? Oh yeah, Lin was there. John John M. Chu there. I'm I'm less nervous about Lin because I've known Lin for a really long time. I've known him since we were in our 20s in New York, but. I know for everyone else, he's like a big, big deal. But to me, he's yeah. just Lin-Manuel. You know, he's my okay. buddy. But I was nervous. Yeah, I was really nervous. I got multiple voice lessons beforehand. And it took me to Encanto like premiering. And my voice teacher, Eric Vitro, was like, now you have to call yourself a singer. Like, you have to say that. And I was like, okay. You've got, you've got a <laughs> duet still- with like Camilla Cabello. Like, you're a singer. <laughs> I mean, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I'm a singer. Yeah, it's wild. Do you want to do more singing in future? I would love to. Oh, my God. My dream is to do Broadway and play Roxy in Chicago. Chicago. That would be amazing. I would freaking love to do that. Oh, my kid's singing in the background. Oh, Did you hear that? You can do it together. It's lovely. <laughs> She's like really into making noise now. Well, right. Before I let you go, because you're a very busy lady. We've got lots going on. Yeah. I want to talk about your podcast because the first time, actually, the, when we met was in a pub after I got to see your show. And of all the things I could talk to you about, we spent a lot of time talking about cults. Yeah. Um, which is not what you'd expect. Tell me a little bit about Twin Flames. So Twin Flames is a new podcast from Wondery. And it's absolutely fascinating. It follows the story of this the so the idea of twin flames has been around for a long time. And the sort of general idea is that every person on this planet has a twin flame. Your exact match, like it's bigger than a soulmate. Your souls are destined to be together. I mean, I don't know if you can tell by the way I'm saying this, but I think it's a load of crap. But (laughs) this idea was picked up by this couple, Jeff and Shalia. Mm -hmm. And this couple started putting out YouTube videos about how they had an incredible relationship, a harmonious union, and they started the Twin Flames universe. And Essentially, they said on their videos, like, we are a perfect union. We can help you find your perfect union. We can help you find your twin flame for the low, low price of, you know, whatever the heck that they were charging. Mm -hmm. And people bought it. People bought into it. They bought into this idea and they bought their courses and they bought the coaching from Jeff and Shalia. And unfortunately, Jeff and Shalia don't have any accreditation. They're not like relationship coaches. They're basically self-appointed gurus. Jeff Mm. at this point is actually saying he's the second coming of God. That's how crazy (laughs) this gets. Like people that sort of started coaching with them were encouraged to go super, super far to connect to their twin flame. Even if, let's say, their twin flame, the person that they thought that was their twin flame, or at some at certain points, Jeff and Shalia would say, like, this person is your twin flame. You have to claim them. So the people in this community started thinking, like, okay, my coaches are telling me to claim this person. So I'm going to sit outside of their house in my car. I'm going to call them incessantly. I'm going to basically stalk them and pressure them into a relationship with me. And it ended up in people getting arrested. Like at at a certain point, Jeff and Shalia got so 
big, quote unquote, that they had multiple people working for them. You know, all of these people that are working for them, by the way, are paying Jeff and Shalia to be able to coach for them. The other, the ugly side of this, and there's so many ugly sides to it, but like a very ugly side of it is like Jeff and Shalia aren't giving these lessons away for free. They're making money. They're buying big houses and nice cars with the money that they're making from these people that are essentially just looking for love. And so the podcast explores how far some of their students go and it gets really scary and really dangerous. And it's also like bewildering as someone who would not buy into something like that, as someone Mm -hmm. who's never been part of a cult. The other part that's bewildering is like you listen to it and you go, oh God, I can see how people get sucked into this. Jeff shot Shalia a look. He had an idea. Go give him the drill. Oh. Give him the drill? Duh. Don't you still have his, his tool, his drill? Or yeah it's, in my, yeah, it's in my car. Don't be shy about it. Go f- track him down. Give him the drill. Right? This drill was symbolic because a drill is like a power tool. It was symbolic of me giving his masculinity back to him, me giving him the drill. Angie wasn't sure, but Jeff seemed so certain. We'll see him. Tell him how you really feel and uh, do whatever it takes. She needed to drive to Ron's house and claim him by giving him his drill. Just do it, just go in there confidently and just claim him and, you know, this is your twin flame, there's no messing around. But it was Shalia who sounded a note of caution. It was not going to be easy. You know he's going to lay some shit on you, but you're going to be prepared. And remember, like, when he lays that shit on you, it's always a bid to love. That's all it is. It's just a bid for love. And to your response is, I don't give a fuck. I'm going to love you one more <laughs> one. I don't give a fuck about that shit. I love unconditionally. Angie still wasn't sure. Ron had told her not to get in touch. So wouldn't it be a better idea to, like, send an email? Nope, now you're being a puss. <laughs> Show up at his door and fucking give him the drill and tell him that he's your man. Now's not the time to be appropriate. Yeah, fuck appropriate. Yeah, fuck appropriate. Angie was convinced. She was going to march on up there and give Ron his drill. It was time to claim her man. As narrator and host, how is it compared to other jobs? Because I guess you've got a different role when you come to a project like this. Totally. I mean, as a narrator, you're really reading a script that's been already shaped for you. I mean, the producers Mm -hmm. have done a lot of the legwork of all of these interviews. And then the story writers sort of shape the interviews into something that feels cohesive, you know, Mm -hmm. and they kind of track how things happen, starting with Jeff and Shalia and their backgrounds, but then moving into different people who were part of the Twin Flames universe. And so as the narrator, you're really trying to keep the story moving along and creating empathy for certain characters. And also like, you got to keep it entertaining. So there's quite a bit of my own personality in there because like, I just can't even handle Jeff and Shalia. I mean, I just no, you think gotta that get the humor just, in there as well. I had to, there were, there were parts where I was like, I have to say something about this. And they were like, yeah, go ahead, riff. You know, I really enjoy podcasts in which the narration feels like you're listening to a friend tell you mm. about a crazy story. And so mm-hmm. that's sort of what I tried to bring to it as the narrator. 
I mean, it feels from talking to you, it's like the perfect project for you. But how did it come about? Did they kind of contacted you? Did you say, I want to do something in this field? I know some people that work with Wondery and they got in touch with me and said, like, we've got this great project. Would you be interested in narrating it? And I had actually read an article about Jeff and Shalia in Vanity Fair. It was a sort of, I would call it an expose piece that dove into how Twin Flames Universe was kind of created and what they were doing. And I was fascinated by it because especially in this world of like social media and putting things on the internet and projecting an image, these two people really project that they've got this perfect harmonious union and that anyone can have it if you just follow our simple instructions. And you know that can't be the whole story. That's not the whole story, especially when you think about the, the fact that they're charging people money for this, you know? When you're describing this, it's like, you know, like it's like a mad film. Like this is real life. Like I always just think oh, real no. life is madder yeah. than any script, anything that you can script. Oh, 100%. I mean, there's a part in the podcast where Jeff and Julia, like they're staying at Jeff's friend's house and they're not paying him rent. They're staying in his basement. He goes to work every day. They've been there for multiple weeks, I think months at that point. And Jeff's not working. He just like doesn't really like to work. And (laughs) his friend is at work and decides to watch one of the videos that they've put on YouTube. And he turns the video on. And there's Jeff sitting in his friend's office, his friend's home office, gesticulating to the background and saying, look at everything I have. I have a beautiful house. I have a nice car. I did this myself. You can create your reality. And his friend is just sitting there watching this YouTube video going like, that's my house. I worked for that car. You know, like you can't make this up. But if you put something on the internet, it's so hard to prove whether or not it's true or false. And that is the danger of believing everything that you see on your computer. It's such a good listen, Twin Flames. Yeah. It's such a good listen. And there's a lot of like true crime and real life, but there's such a thirst for it. I was on set recently and one of the floor managers who I've worked with for years in a very professional manner and she just came up to me and she went, do you want to join our podcast club? It's all about true crime podcasts. <gasps> and I was like, oh what? So I have suggested Twin Flames for them because they haven't listened to it yet. Yay. Mm. I'm going to have to let you go now. I could literally speak to you all day. Steph, thank you so much for taking the time on Castaway. Oh my God, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's it. Another episode down as we delve deep into my guest's audio world. I hope you get cast away by today's top podcast picks. Yeah, I just said that, sorry. All of the podcasts we've mentioned today are included in the episode show notes. Now, if you love this conversation as much as I did, please share your thoughts by leaving a review. And if you'd like to receive weekly installments of Cast Away delivered straight to your phone, hit the subscribe button. Until next time, that's it from me. Take care. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.